All good Christian lovers know that this program, modest as it sounds, will not be carried out except by humility, charity, and divine grace. That it is indeed the whole Christian life seen from one particular angle. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 22, The Four Loves, Chapter 5, Eros, Part 3. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly CSOS podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and myself, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through the four loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. Well, we're recording this before Valentine's Day, but it'll be published the day after. So happy Valentine's Day, gentlemen. How are you both? Happy Valentine's Day to you, too. I have a great Valentine. It's my favorite Valentine. So uh, I will have taken Kristen out to one of our favorite little spots here in Arlington. And that's going well. Um, Got some treasures I didn't get to flex uh, and show you all uh, beforehand, but I just found on eBay a first first edition second printing of The Great Divorce. So, and... Uh, just today, uh, closed the deal on a first printing, first edition, second printing British of mere Christianity. So I'm going to start to get the whole eBay cranked up. And then I don't know if you all are familiar with Sacred Ordinary Days, um, this marvelous journaling company. And so they were just doing a uh, 75% off sale. So I'm using their academic planner, um, but I just bought their liturgical planner. Uh, and this will be my first official planner as an ordained person come June. So, yeah. So happy, happy mails. How about you, David? Well, or Andrew, are you trying oh. to get a little of that Batesian rigidity with this planner? Is it like rubbing <laughs> off on you? Um, <laughs> as he vigorously rubs it on his shoulder. Uh, no, I just, I find that I lose stuff if I don't, if I don't write it down. My wife is an inveterate list maker and also six times more productive than me. I'm sure there's no correlation. <laughs> well, I am glad to hear it. Uh, as for me, I am back in Wisconsin. California was fun, but it's nice to be back home. Uh, I don't actually have a whole lot of updates, except that uh, patron supporter Carlotta has just started a new C.S. Lewis group in, very appropriately, St. Louis. I'll make sure that I put a link to her group in the show notes and on our website if anybody would like to join. I love it. How about you, Matt? Oh, you know, I was I was reflecting the other day in the morning at just how God has been so good in 2022. Not that he wasn't good in the other years, but just that that journey of we've talked about on the screw tape letters and you know the pandemic I think hit lots of us and just that journey. Twenty twenty two one was a lot of trying to get back to to uh, habits and routines with the spiritual life. In twenty twenty two, it's just been fantastic. It's been a great start, and I feel like I'm getting so much closer to the type of relationship and commitment that I want to have with our Lord. And from a time perspective, and uh, and, and it's, I'm seeing it and I'm seeing the fruits of that, that time together and just been going to mass really frequently and spending a lot of times in the morning and, you know, 30 to 60 minutes of prayer. And it's just been, it's amazing when you make that commitment 
the fruits that come from that when you're with the Holy Spirit, when you're with our Father, and the way it sort of penetrates and pierces your heart. So just very grateful for that. And that was just something I was reflecting on the other day. <laughs> Taste Sounds and like- see that the Lord is good. Yes. Speaking of tasting. Speaking of tasting. Well, and I love that you're doing that just in, in in front of Lent. And so I pray that that continues to be a, a big well, blessing. I'm hoping Lent is where I take that next to final push. I guess there's no final push. You always should be pushing. <laughs> and then, then you're done. I, the halo is complete. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> but if I got to maybe 50% of my stuff back in 2021 after just losing so much in 2020, I feel like I'm at 75 or 80. I'm trying to just get this routine ingrained, you know, from Jan 1 to March, you know, a couple months under my belt, and then I'm going to make another push to try to get that last bit that I, I want to get to, that I'm striving for. Well, I normally give up going to church for Lent um, by probably doing that wrong. Um, actually, one year here in seminary, I gave up uh, raising my hand in class for Lent, uh, which was incredibly painful, which uh, <laughs> means that I was probably doing the right thing. So uh, That's yeah. hilarious. My grandma, she's I was just with her, and she's giving up ice cream and wine, and those are very tough for her. Uh, she's mm-hmm. like 82, 83, and... Her plan is to make sure she loads up beforehand so that way she's stocked and ready to go. Oh, boy. Well, speaking of uh, what we're not giving up, uh, we're not giving up scotch today. I am drinking Inchmurin uh, from one of the little bottles that Matt sent along, and it's an 18-year-old. doesn't smell very smoky, um, and true confessions, I actually thought that we were recording last night, so I was all set up and... And had sipped up some <laughs> scotch when I realized that I'd gotten the day wrong. So, see, this is what happens when you start pre-gaming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've been hammered for the last note. I would just say, based do? on David's responses, genuinely lower your expectations. <laughs> well, Andrew, you and I actually get to do this journey together because I have exactly the same whiskey in front of me. Well, if it's any consolation, I have a one from the same buying spree that I did okay. to pick all these tasting up, but it's not the same one. It's a Glen Kinchy. And I'm just amazed at how many Glens there are in the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, today we are toasting Jake von Gnarlich. Um, So here's to Jake, and we pray that your day and your week will be blessed, especially as you look forward to thinking about love. Cheers. 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 Oh, that's such a better sound, Andrew. That and was Jake, proper. I'm excited. We're going to be talking to Jake in a couple of weeks from when this is released, I think end of January uh, for our Patreon call. And I'm glad to know his name is Jake because Jake, as we mentioned before, your your Patreon said snort von Gnarlick. <laughs> and we were all like, is, 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 what is this? Now we we're going to get the story out of that. We are going to get uh, the story. I'm so excited for this story. Wonderful. Well, it's not smoky. It's not smoky, but and it, it can't has all be a bit perfect. of a medicinal nose. But um, mine's not very good. It's got a it's got a fuller body than most of the ones that came from Matt's magic brown bag. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, you have such a a pastoral disposition. He hears me say, "Mine's not very good," and his first thought "Oh, I'm oh. so sorry." <laughs> <laughs> I may have mentioned last time, uh, one of our listeners gave us a gift card for scotch, and then uh, I got a gift card um, from the library where I work on campus. And so I'm going to combine those and uh, got a $150 limit to find a 
I'm hoping to find a nice bottle of Kalahila somewhere here in D.C. So we'll Ooh, lovely. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me move things on with the recap. Chapter one, need love, gift love, and how the divinization of love leads to its demonization. Chapter two, love of nature and love of country, and how they become distorted. In chapter three, affection or storgi, the love of the family and the familiar. In chapter four, the love of friendship or philia, which is humbling, uninquisitive, and not prone to jealousy. It can embolden us and make us deaf to those outside of our group, either for good or for ill. Then, at the beginning of this month, we started chapter five and our discussion of romantic love, or eros. Jack distinguished eros from Venus, its carnal component. He said that Venus can develop either before or after eros, and its morality doesn't depend upon the presence or absence of eros. The morality of Venus depends upon much more prosaic matters. While many think that Eros's chief danger lies in its carnal element, Lewis suggests that a wrong kind of seriousness has developed around Venus, and he warns us that this seriousness will cause us to deify Venus, and she herself will take her revenge. Mm. Jack considered three different kinds of views of the body, favouring St. Francis's description of it as brother ass, since it neither overly elevates nor denigrates the body. And we wrapped up last week by looking at the two crowns of marriage. Firstly, the tinsel paper crown, which comes from what Lewis calls the natural pagan sacrament. And secondly, the crown of thorns, which is derived from the Christian sacrament of matrimony. And amazingly, I don't know how I didn't manage to mention it last week, but I noticed that as I was listening to the last episode, I didn't mention that in Eastern Christianity, we receive literal crowns in the wedding ceremony. We actually call it the sacrament of the crowning in marriage. Hmm. Whoa, I didn't know that. Actually, I'll put a note in the show notes, uh, a link to the video which I produced, which was a primer for my own wedding uh, back before we found out that it was going to be a COVID wedding and uh, that we wouldn't have lots of guests. Uh, but in the video, I explain all the different elements of the Eastern marriage rite. Anyway, Anything else worth adding to the recap before we go forward? I'd say mine is more of an emphasis. You alluded to it quickly in that chapter one, but it keeps popping up for me. It's a big theme that that comes out from this is just the idea that the more God-like a love, the closer it gets to the divine, the more it can be mistaken for the divine. And that's a lot where the dangers come from. And we're going to see that in this chapter. We've seen that, or this section, we've seen that in other ones. And it reminded me of that expression, I think it was from Mere Christianity, David, when you and I were doing it. Uh, we can mistake brass for gold, but not mud. Nope. Is that it was from Lewis's best book. The Great Divorce, no way. Yeah, McDonald says brass is more <laughs> easily mistaken book. for gold. <laughs> Good. See, I was I was close. I thought I was going to look it up, and but then I said to myself, uh, David's going to get more of a chuckle out of Matt butchering something and getting it 80% right. I, I was impressed like, with your boldness. Hold on. Actually, yeah, the um, the connection with mere Christianity, there is that that section where he says that um, a, a dog can be better than a horse and a man can be better than a dog and therefore can be worse than a dog. And that's why an angel can be almost infinitely better and infinitely worse than than a human and, you know, referring to to the devil. And so I think that there's something of that in here too. And I know that we're uh, near time and need to move on, but I just, I saw Carlotta's comment today and I saw that you engaged that. 
I'm asking about whether or not there can really be good Eros if there isn't also Philia. And I think, Carlotta, that for almost the entire history of marriage, there was probably much less friendship in romantic relationships or, or marriages um, than there is today because of, of the now we have such similar capacities um, and similar educations, which is some of what Lewis talks about um, qualifying us as friends. And I think that you could be very, very good and happily, happily married um, spouses without a whole lot of philia, but I would need philia as well if my wife and I weren't friends, I would need her to um, to sanction and bless me having friends, friendships as I would do for her. Uh, I think that Storgi certainly will grow along with Eros and in some ways much more naturally than, uh, than Philia necessarily growing. But I think that married couples and romantic partners should also very much think about developing an interest in which that they both enjoy. So maybe take up stamp collecting or skydiving or whatever it is to, in order to have a friendship uh, around something that you enjoy. So I think that affection grows absolutely agape or agape, unconditional love certainly must grow uh, in Eros, but I don't think Eros and Philia necessarily need to uh, need to get along. But did you see my comment that I think a very natural path for it to develop, if it wasn't there already, is through the begetting of children? Because then you are building the matrix of friendship. You have this commonality, this common task uh, in terms of raising your children, at least where there is proper co-parenting, uh, and yes. in particular children as well. Sure. And of course, that comes from Storgi, you know, you're, mm -hmm. you're, because you're a family. But when you sit around and talk about how to raise your child, you know, that certainly is an element of friendship. And it also can lead you into friendships with others who have children of the same age. So, yeah, fascinating stuff. Except when you teach your five-month-old son how to blow raspberries and your wife doesn't think it's as funny as you do. <laughs> a friend It's going to be the story of my life someday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me go on and give the 100-word summary for the last part of Chapter 5. Eros does not aim at happiness, and as a result, empowers us to sacrifice and to be long-suffering. Eros can be the stuff of great marriages, but it can urge to evil as well as good. Plato and George Bernard Shaw may endorse all utterances of Eros, but the Christian cannot. And the irony is that Eros doesn't even deliver the constancy which it naturally promises. While Eros may be the fuel and the model for Christian charity, the unilateral demands of Eros must sometimes be denied. Fine feelings do not justify all actions done in the name of Eros. David, that felt, felt like a very fancy... Yeah, I'm hearing unilateral demands. I'm like, well done. <laughs> it just sounded... <laughs> I don't even know the right word, but... I liked it. Well done. With that, let's jump into the text. Fantastic. Righty-ho. Okay, so in the last episode, Jack focused on the carnal element of Eros, which he called Venus. However, in today's episode, he zooms out a bit and considers Eros as a whole. And he says that as Venus within Eros does not really aim at pleasure, so Eros does not aim at happiness. Is this really true, though? Lewis <laughs> offers us some evidence. He says that everyone knows that it is useless to try and separate lovers by proving to them that their marriage will be an unhappy one. This is not only because they will disbelieve you, 
They usually will, no doubt. But even if they believed, they would not be dissuaded. For it is the very mark of Eros that when it is in us, we had rather share unhappiness with the beloved than be happy on any other terms. Now, all this sounds terribly depressing. Uh, so guys, what's the upside of this characteristic of Eros? The first thing I was thinking of with that was, I agreed with this statement, Eros does not aim at happiness. You know, that's that's not the end in itself. But I actually didn't think his evidence, I thought his evidence was an extreme case to to make a point that yes, if if at the extreme, but I, I also think there's a ton of situations where Eros is leading to incredible happiness and it's a beautiful gift. And if you're doing Eros properly, a very self-sacrificial way, like Christ on the cross, kenosis, that emptying of yourself, I think a byproduct will be happiness. Now, I want to be slightly careful because it's almost like saying when you pray, if you have strong faith, you'll move mountains. And if the mountains don't move, you don't have faith. Like, I don't want to say if you don't have happiness, you're not doing it properly. Um, but I do think overall it will. So I think here it's an extreme case he's giving. So I think the upside characteristics of arrows are happiness, actually. Um, I do think sanctification comes in there. Uh, I think there's in a marriage with that strong commitment, that love for the other, there's, there's a lot of growth that happens with each other. Um, and but so the question that I was asking wasn't so much what's the upside of Eros, but this particular characteristic of Eros. If Jack is right, if Eros would rather be unhappy with the beloved than be happy on any other terms, what's the upside of that? See, I, I think that this is tied in with joy. Um, and there's a particular poignancy. And um, uh, I'm, I'm drawing from uh, this line we had rather share unhappiness with the beloved than be happy on any other terms. I had a couple of students years ago, um, my first year teaching Houston Christian, and uh, this couple got together their senior year, fell in love, and now they're married with a child and everything's going swimmingly. But uh, he went to Colorado and she went to Oklahoma and they decided to maintain their relationship. And it was very hard. There were several hundred miles in between them. But she fundamentally said, I would rather miss my beloved than be happy mm -hmm. with any one of the thousands of you know, college students that are, that are here at my university. And he said the same. I would rather the pain of missing my beloved than the comfort of anyone else. And so if I can't be with her or if I can't be with him, I would rather miss them. Um, and ache and long for them than I would find happiness on any other level. And to me, that that kind of aching or longing, of course, is joy. It's the having and wanting. It's feeling the absence of. And the charms of the one that I that I adore and that I love and who, who with whom I'm supposed to be are worth the pains of whatever it would take to be with them, to wait for them, um, all the rest. And so that's, this strikes particularly true. And I always think of that example when I get to this part of, the, part of the text. I love that. And the way I would sum it up is because of this characteristic of Eros, it prompts us to be self-sacrificial and to be long-suffering. And Jack says that this is the grandeur and terror of love. Because as we're going to read in the next chapter, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Yes. And Lewis also notes that in Eros, like in Venus, this grandeur can be mixed with a playfulness. And rather prophetically, given what he's going to be going through in the coming years, he says that in hospital wards, 
and on visitors' days in jail, that a couple will sometimes be surprised by the merriment. And he ends the section with this line, until they have had a baby to laugh at, lovers are always laughing at each other. <laughs> and as someone who's got a five-month-old infant, this is definitely true, although I will say that you still do occasionally laugh at your spouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, the line about hospital wards, I think, is taken directly from Lewis's own experience with Joy Davidman, because by now... Um, by the time he writes this, I think her cancer has returned, and he certainly thought that he was going to uh, going to to um, lose her. I also would throw into the mix that marvelous essay of Lewis's called "We Have No Right to Happiness." Hmm. That was and, published posthumously after his death. Okay, I didn't know that. I'd look that up. Um, and the idea fundamentally is that. We, ha we can have contentment. In fact, godliness with contentment is great joy. Um, but also, is it the nature of the human condition to be happy? Happy is momentary. It, it's, it's temporary. It goes away. And I think that, um, that fundamentally our overwhelming comprehensive happiness is to be reserved for heaven. Because that's the only place that we will be free from all of those things that keep us from being happy. And so I think if happiness is a goal, you're headed down a, a very dangerous street. <laughs> well, we've spoken about the upside of Eros, this grandeur and playfulness. But what's the possible downside of it? That's where it goes to what I mentioned at the summary area. There's a divine-like nature to Eros. And what is that? As Lewis points out, it's this total commitment. And David, you actually already alluded to it with the self-sacrificial side of it. it. It calls us to a lot of, I use the term constantly, kenosis, that self-emptying, like what Christ did on the cross, emptied himself for us, we're supposed to do in marriage. And so you can already see the parallel between marriage, Eros, and the divine love for us. And so the danger then is that that gets mistaken for the divine love and that total commitment can go awry. So how many times do you see people doing really dangerous things in the name of Eros, that total commitment in the wrong direction? Imagine a complete blind faithfulness, total commitment without the restraints of virtue in the teachings and the truth. And so the danger is when it gets applied in the wrong ways. And he uses different examples. And didn't at one point he used the example of a suicide pact um, murdering people. I mean, you could do different things with that commitment. Grab your drinks, fellas, because I think that one of the things uh, that one of the problems that Orwell faces is her jealousy of any of those who have love. Uh, in Lewis's best book, Till We Have Faces. Oh, that's another one. Oh, you're right. That's a second set. <laughs> there we go. But she's jealous of Eros himself for taking Psyche. She's jealous of their love. Oh, Psyche, you mean you love it? You, you actually enjoy it when she's talking about her relations with, with her husband. She's jealous of Redival because she's got this physical beauty and, you know, and, and can have all of, these, uh, all of these lovers. She's jealous of Bardi and Ansett and what they share. And so, of course, she's jealous of Eros. Eros is the god of the, 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 god of the mountain the son of Aphrodite, the, that is Eros. And so there's this kind of love becomes a demon for her because she will not allow him to be its proper God. So it works, I think, the other way around as well. She doesn't respect him for what he should be. And in this book, Lewis writes, Eros has spoken like a God. 
his total commitment, his reckless disregard of happiness, his transcendence of self-regard sound like a message from the eternal world. And the problem with Eros sounding like God is that he may urge you to evil as well as to good. And the love which can lead to a beautiful Christian marriage can also be the stuff of which all kinds of evil is made. And remember that evil is a, is, a, um, is a parasitic love. It twists the good. And so it can lend you to evil by not letting Eros have its proper place. And sometimes Eros's proper place is not at all. In fact, many times it is. Um, and until we come to grips with that in terms of that, I think that we uh, may open the door to all kinds of trouble for ourselves. Hmm. Well, and, and David, I think it was in this section where he mentions hopefully it's not a later one, that Eros has to be continually chastened by higher principles. And this made me think of your answer that I asked, was it the last episode or the episode before, of what, whenever, how do we, in, actually might have been the common room, how do we infuse, when we, when we constantly hear about the divine love saving the natural loves, what does that look like? And David, you said virtue. And I really liked that answer. It's, it's the virtues is sort of that thing that protects the natural loves. And that's practically what he's saying right here, continually chastened or chastened by higher principles. I would argue there's, there's a virtue there that he's talking about. And that's how, we, that's how we protect it from what you mentioned, that how it can go awry and dangerous. Well, that actually is a little bit later. <laughs> oh, damn. Uh, because Classic, Lewis points out the various schools of thought really try to justify the grandeur of Eros's claims. He first of all speaks about Plato and about how, for him, falling in love is a recognition of the person with whom you were already joined in a previous celestial existence. And this comes from the Supposium. Um, Aristophanes says that humans were originally created with two sets of genitals, four hands and four feet. However, they then became a threat to the gods, you know, what with all of their prodigious hands, feet and genitals. Uh, <laughs> And they were divided in two. Therefore, under this model, romantic love then is about finding your very literal other half. And Lewis says that this is a beautiful poetic expression. But if true, it shows that people were still dumb even in the celestial existence. Because many people who fall in love with each other have predictably terrible marriages. Hmm. Well, and I'll go back to a point that I made before. Romantic love and falling in love is not necessarily the best qualifier for a happy marriage. And even if it does indicate a happy marriage, it's very soon that you have to play, replace the, the, the raptures, the swooning raptures of Eros with something steadier. And so unless affection and agape come in, to Eros. Uh, that Eros is sure to stumble and fall. And we just have to look around at our culture to see that that's exactly the case. Or our personal dating histories. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, go for it. Did you guys think of a severe, of severe mercy at all when you're reading this, these Very past couple much. sections? Uh-huh. That whole way that they put their love, the, sh the shining barrier around it, put it on a pedestal, it was just making me think of that constantly and how what, what ended up saving it from itself, the divine love, eventually the higher principles. And so I felt like this, that just kept coming into this. Well, and remember, what do we put on pedestals in the ancient world? Gods, idols. Yeah, exactly. And love ceases, blah, blah, blah. David, you were <laughs> going to say. 
I was just going to give a little bit of context for people who don't know what A Severe Mercy is. This is a book which we're going to be reading later this season. It's about a couple who are deeply in love, and they encounter Lewis, and ultimately Jesus. Uh, but uh, I'm going to not say anything more about that until we actually get to that point. So read the book. Yes, it's great. It is really, really good. In in my part of the world, it was known as the crying book because it was passed <sighs> around to the community and everybody just kept handing it, weeping back to the person that lent it to them. <laughs> I want to reread it because I read it in college. I wasn't in any sort of romantic pursuits and I didn't get as much of like that crying side or stuff from the the first half, which is very much like a love story. But the second half, that journey from atheism to Christianity was really what resonated with me then. I'd be curious if I read it now, if the first part of the story played more of an impact in my journey. Because what's cool, listeners, if you do read it, that second part, they share all the, a lot of the books that they came across. And so what I started doing was underlying these books, buying these books and reading these books that were referenced in there on my own personal journey. And then the letters from Lewis offered some insights into it. So it's a cool book. It, it, it caters to the deeply emotional and the deeply rational. I have to say, though, as much as I loved that book, and I haven't read it in decades, but I'm looking forward to my reread, about half the people I talk to find it just uh, incomprehensible and far too emotional yes. and um, just don't understand why anybody would get all that worked up about it. And so um, I will- It's the first half always. Yeah. It's, the, oh, yeah. it's like too sappy. It's too cheesy. It's too- That's what I hear on that first half a lot. Yep. But um, it was written rapturously. It was written in the first, in like three weeks or something, and so it it has kind of a breathless quality, and and I think it's well worth consideration. It and I love that it gives us a little slice of Lewis's life. Mm -hmm. So Plato took the godlike voice of Eros seriously, but Lewis also mentions someone else who does, and he's someone whom we've met several times over the course of this podcast, Mister George Bernard Shaw. So, gentlemen, who was he and what was his deal? I'm going to take a rough stab, even though I know I'm sort of wrong. But uh, he came up a ton with G.K. Chesterton, actually. And I think him and Chesterton, didn't him and Chesterton debate, actually? Mm -hmm. And they were very yeah, good friends. So and my wife actually just showed me a picture of the two of them dressed up as cowboys. That happened. Oh, that is so cool. Please send that in the group chat and uh, we got to post that. That's cool. But yeah, he, <laughs> from, what I, from what I gathered, he was a... a a strong intellectual and on the evolutionary side, atheistic side. And he used to debate with um, Chesterton and Chesterton referenced him all the time against the sort of pure evolutionary view that he was not evolution is not right, but the materialistic, like purely materialistic view. Well, and my library um, is removing some of the older, um, older literary books that we have other things, other copy, electronic copies of. And so I just scored a 1909 copy of George Bernard Shaw by G.K. Chesterton. Um, oh. And in the introduction to the first edition, he says, this is Chesterton, most people either say that they agree with Bernard Shaw or that they do not understand him. I am the only person who understands him and I do not agree with him. GKC. <laughs> That's such a classic Chesterton line. <laughs> and um, those of you who've read Surprised by Joy will recognize Lewis's uh, uh, teen years in schools where people were always talking about GK, GKC and GBS, George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. He was a 19th slash 20th century 
Irish playwright, and he believed in the Alain Vital, the life force. Lewis refers to it here as metabiological romanticism and the evolutionary appetite. And so then that prompts the question, what has this got to do with the subject of Eros? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I do know, though, that the Alain Vital comes up a great deal. It comes up at the beginning of mere Christianity. Um, And there's, it's kind of like the force. Uh, And so there's this sense at, uh, at which there's this kind of undescribable uh, life force. And there's a whole footnote on it in Christianity, one of the early chapters. Well, ultimately this, this life force idea is almost this, if you think from the evolutionary perspective, natural selection over time, the fittest are making their way through the, the least fit are getting weeded out. And eventually we're getting more and more and more and more closer to this superhuman type individual. And so Eros is honestly a means to the end of more procreation and getting towards this end goal. There was a book called uh, Homo Deus rather than Homo Sapien. And I've referenced Mm -hmm. it in a podcast episode probably three years ago. And the same idea that we are eventually going to become the gods that we've created. This is an atheist. Uh, writing this. And so I think that's kind of that idea here. And so Eros is just a tool in that process. Yeah. It's this bringing about of the Superman. And Lewis is, he's kind of funny because he offers three objections to this idea. Uh, He says that the image of the life force's Superman is so unattractive that he jokes that men and women would vow celibacy to avoid bringing him about. Uh, I love that. He also says that the intensity of Eros is no guarantee of any offspring or superior offspring. And he also asks the question, what was the life force doing in the generations prior to this general acceptance of love-based marriages? Yeah. I love how Lewis just kind of with three strokes of the sword, uh, tears it to tatters. Um, the <laughs> Superman, of course, refers to, I think it's it's the, isn't there a book by Nietzsche, Man and Superman? Mm-hmm. Yep. And Ubermensch is his uh, German term for it. And that's where we get our whole idea about Superman. And there's this sense at the beginning of the 20th century that people are getting better and better and will eventually be, you know, wonderful. And Nietzsche's also the guy who said, uh, God is dead. I remember that there was uh, one stall in my university where the best graffiti uh, was was written in the in the restroom, and somebody wrote Nietzsche is dead, or I'm sorry, God is dead, Nietzsche, and then underneath some wag wrote Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So that idea of this kind of getting better and better. Um, and that's that's something that I think that just bare experience will put put the lie to. And particularly the history of the 20th century. Now, naturally, Lewis says that we can't accept either Plato or Shaw on this subject. We can't give Eros this godlike status, uh, but we also can't ignore it. And I think this is this is the core passage about Eros where he's explaining its value. He says, This love is really and truly like love himself. In it, there is a real nearness to God by resemblance, but not, therefore and necessarily, a nearness of approach. So this kicks us back to the earlier chapters where he defined all of these terms. He says, Eros, honoured as far as love of God and charity to our fellows will allow, so there are limits on it, may become for us a means of approach. His total commitment is a paradigm or an example built into our nature of the love we ought to exercise towards God and man. 
So it's this example, it's this pattern. And, but yet he still says that sometimes we might have to totally renounce Eros, although we must never treat it with contempt, uh, but we should always conditionally honor it. Yeah, and your notes say that we can't give Eros this godlike status. Um, and I'm sure you're echoing Lewis here, but I wonder if maybe we can. But we have to recognize that Eros is a demigod, yeah. right? Eros is godlike because all godness comes from God. And so this is why the medievals had little trouble with uh, doing all kinds of astrology and, and mythology. Um, the medievals knew that there was a Zeus, but they knew that Zeus was subordinate to Christ, right? Even an imaginative Zeus. They didn't, medieval Christians didn't really believe in the Greek god Zeus. Um, but the idea of the gods, which seems so antithetical to modern Christianity, oh, that's pagan, Paganism worked hand in hand with Christianity, but the medievals were really good at kind of putting all of those things in their place. And that's part of what Michael Ward's uh, Planet Narnia does so well, is that it shows that, yes, these are gods, but these gods will end up serving Christ. And they take their godlikeness because they imitate the qualities of the one true God. And so when they have their proper lower pedestals, uh, they can stick around as long as they help us towards Christ. It's it's like in Prince Caspian when they said when the girls say that they would be scared if Aslan wasn't also there. Mm-hmm. You know, David, in the mm-hmm. the quote you just read from the book, means of approach. We talked in the beginning how it's not a means to happiness. I think this is the crux of this entire chapter. Is it's a means to the approach, meaning approaching God. It's that journey, that sanctification. But as we've already talked about in a few of the preceding sections of this part, it, it's a means doesn't mean a guarantee. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity. It's a vehicle. I mean, mm-hmm. it's an instrument. But we we need to make sure that we're using it properly. And that goes back to the virtues. That it goes back to divine love protecting it. That goes back to the grace. And so... It's a gift, it's an opportunity, but it, it also can be dangerous in our spiritual journey because it's since it's such a potentially powerful tool, Satan is attacking this so hard. Well, and in Lewis's second best book, he does say there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those who God says, thy will be done. And so if a God, any God, will help us to seek the will of the one true God, that God can stick around. If that God leads us even a little bit astray, that God needs to leave. And I, I find myself in this neighborhood anytime there are um, conversations amongst different communions of Christians about praying to saints and praying to Mary. For me, uh, when I say the Hail Mary, that brings me closer to the mother heart of God. And I look through Mary towards the God, towards the, the one true God who is, who is, who is behind her. Um, and so any of our devotional life, any of our imaginative life, if it brings us closer to the virtues, if it brings us closer to Christ, if it brings us closer to faith and hope and love, if it helps us to see God himself more clearly, that's going to be a good thing to the pure. All things are pure. If my praying to Mary or to saints leads me towards idolatry or the the thought that I can manipulate God to do what I want him to, <laughs> that I can ask St. Anthony and he will help me find my lost thing or whatever it is. Um, if I think that I have the power to control God, 
that's going to that's not obedience that's not helpful and so when the true god comes the half gods can take their place when god arises then all of the other things that enter our, our imaginations if they lead us to him and if they lead us to right conduct then they will be blessed and if they don't no matter how holy they they seem to be um that's something that we need to make an adjustment on what do you Catholic boys think about that? <laughs> well, we will be talking about this again, probably Dr. Jason Lepoyavi, because he's done a lot of work in this area, and it ties in perfectly with the main thesis of this book. What do you do when you have a disordered love? Is the solution to love something less? No. Is to put it in its proper place and to love the things that deserve your love more. Mm -hmm. So if I'm getting distracted by a saint, what I actually really need to do is not love that saint less, but to love God more. Yes. And that's what I say to my to my Protestant friends who are confused by my use of the rosary or or you know saying the Hail Mary. It helps me to understand God more and his loving kindness, and it helps me to love him more, which is exactly what Mary and all the saints and all the gods can and should do. They say, do whatever my son tells you to do. And so mm -hmm. the gods are helpful if they will point through themselves towards the other, the one, the one true God, and if they will produce in us the kind of fruit that Christ would have us bear. Oh, you tricksy Episcopalians. <laughs> <laughs> the Bia Media, always walking the middle way. <laughs> try, try, try that on the street. Let me know how that goes. Okay. Um, <laughs> He's, Dave is about to leave it right there. <laughs> Uh, one thing I do want to point out in this section. I'm praying uh, to Mary for you right now. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> uh, one, one of the really wonderful points that Lewis makes here, he actually calls back to chapter two when we spoke about love of nature. And if you recall, there he said that nature gives content to words like glory. And he says that in a similar way, eros gives us a content to the word charity. And I'll definitely say this was true for myself. When I first romantically loved somebody, I got a brief glimpse as to how much I could love somebody and the way that I could love them in a really sacrificial way that I had never even really considered before. And this is one of the great things about Eros. It allows us to experience in the small what we should really be experiencing in a slightly different way with everybody. Hmm. But Lewis does note, Eros of himself will never be enough will indeed survive only insofar as he is, Matthew, continually chastened and corroborated by higher principles. That was so far early so on this far one. <laughs> the thing is, in, in fairness, so so listeners, I, I do my notes on an individual paper. I don't know. I just, I, I really love getting into that. And I spend a few hours with the chapter, but I'm writing it down. And so they don't always line up with David. So I'm like, the problem is that section on the Plato, I clearly didn't think much of any of it. So I didn't take any notes for like four paragraphs, which, so then I jumped all the way to there. And so on the, on your notes, I actually scrolled down slightly and I go, oh, I don't see it. It must be happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, why don't you tell us what you think these higher principles are that it talks about? I really think they're the virtues is, is if I had to put it in one word, I think they're, if we go back to Lewis and mere Christianity, no, actually, we talked about this mere Christianity, but it was Chesterton I was bringing up where he talks about, imagine you're a bunch of kids playing soccer on the top of a mountain with a thousand foot cliffs and the edges. If, if, if you have no constraints, no things to know where, how far to go, but not too much further, no fence around it, the kids are going to be huddled in the very middle of that 
that hilltop and never play soccer. They have no freedom. They're afraid of going over the edge. But if you have a fence around it, they're incredibly free. And that, and I always associate that fence with with teaching, with doctrine, with virtue. And that's the kind of stuff that allows you actually more freedom. Well, and I would also um, think back to the end of Surprise by Joy to the last page that that joy serves only only as a pointer to something other and outer. And so all things that we see in heaven and earth should serve. Eros, you know, romantic love, all of it should point to something outside of itself and other. It ultimately needs to point to God, and if it does, it will be blessed on some level. And if it doesn't, it will be cursed. Okay, so we've spoken very beautifully, uh, but now it's time to really dig into Eros when it goes wrong. And so what is the real problem with demonic Eros? We've mentioned it already. He rejects all who would oppose him. Any claim, doesn't matter if it's made by God or by man, Eros rejects it. Eros wants to be sovereign. And when opposed, he calls his acolytes to become martyrs for love, for Eros, not Agape, unfortunately. And Lewis says that the fear of theologians regarding Eros was that it would become, something we've mentioned already, idolatrous. And Jack suggests that he thinks that these theologians were afraid that the lovers would idolize each other. But he thinks the real danger lies elsewhere. He says that lovers will idolize Eros himself. How might one justify such a claim? Possibly mentioning a book that we've mentioned already today. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll let Andrew answer that, but this is where I was supposed to reference a severe mercy. <laughs> but I dropped that one a little early too. <laughs> You're just so excited. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think that you just look around at pop culture. You know, I mean, the amount of time and effort that's given towards physical and romantic love um, as this incredible ideal um, shows that we have some abnormality in our in our appetites for it, and and that's often very much tied in with how somebody can take a dollar from my pocket and put it in their pocket. And Lewis talks about that in this book, the advertising dollar, and and how that happens. The lovers will think that all you need, as John Lennon said, is love. And if he meant agape, he was right. But if you meant Eros in the throes of him you know, falling in love with, with Yoko Ono, if you think that all you need is love, you're wrong. In fact, um, Lewis somewhere cites this uh, pithy review of William Morris's poem. He has this long book-length poem called Love is Enough. And he said, I read a review once that said simply, it's not. No. Um, it will, it, as an end to itself, all ends are going to become demonic unless those ends turn from themselves and turn towards God. And the repeated frame that we've had throughout this book is love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. And he points out that when we worship Eros, it doesn't mean that we literally set up altars or pray to him. It's just we use Eros to justify anything. I think that we actually do. Um, idolize Eros and worship Eros. Because if you think about worship, worship is about where my heart is. It's about where my hope is. It's about where my money goes. It's about what I'm willing to sacrifice. And it's about what, what I do with my time. And so whatever I'm spending time looking to praise and looking to devote to, that's worship. And I think that we absolutely worship uh, eros and uh, in almost a literal sense in any sense that uh, of worship that that means anything and so hmm. perhaps it's perhaps we are 
Yeah. But the the bottom point, though, is that it is made the all-excusing virtue. And he actually uses the example of Luke 7, where we read that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Mm-hmm. And Lewis presents what he regarded as a popular misinterpretation of this passage, which basically says that Jesus is saying that because she loved so greatly when she committed these apparently assumed sins of unchastity, that's why she's forgiven. And Lewis says, no, that's not the case at all. It's because uh, Jesus has so forgiven her that she loves him so much. Mm -hmm. And this idea that love is this all-excusing virtue or this all-excusing God, Jack says that when lovers say, love made us do it, they're not actually offering an excuse. They're appealing to an authority. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he next up has this wonderful section where he compares Eros to Christianity as it's treated by like a religion. Would one of you mind just sort of giving a broad overview of how he compares it? So Lewis says that where a true Eros is present, resistance to his commands feels like an apostasy. And what are really, by Christians, the, the Christian standard, temptations speak with the voice of duties, quasi-religious duties, acts of pious zeal to love. And you see this all the time. You see this that um, that a, a person will say, I had to leave my marriage because it was a loveless marriage and I fell in love and I had to follow my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're... you're you're breaking a vow that you made to God about the center of your heart. Now, I'm not talking about abusive marriages and unhealthy marriages and all the rest, and I don't want to get into a conversation about divorce, but this idea that if I feel in love, it justifies any decision, any moral decision, any virtue decision, any status decision, that really seems to be what's going on in our day and age. And um, and it seems to be the thing that we allow to drive the bus. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. And not only in the realms of chastity, Lewis points out that this can lead to all kinds of sins uh, relating to justice Mm -hmm. and not even simply with regards to chastity. Rather like distorted friendship, it causes acts of injustice and uncharity towards those who aren't in our inner ring. In this case, it's a literal ring of marriage. Uh, And this literal ring involves just two people. And what's really horrible about this is these terrible things are actually seen as positive proofs for love. Mm -hmm. He he says, it is for love's sake that I have neglected my parents, left my children, cheated my partner, failed my friend at his greatest need. What costlier offering can be laid on love's altar than one's conscience? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that this is especially true in Lewis's context where a woman didn't have nearly the earning power um, in the in the 50s and 60s. Um, and so for a man to leave his wife because he fell in love with somebody else and maybe wife and children, they were almost guaranteed to have a poor economic condition, but he felt like he had to do it because he was being true to himself and and I mean, that's just one of the 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 areas that I think Screwtape has has most won the, the cultural war. Now, as we come to the end of the chapter, Lewis points out the great irony in all of this. 
He says that to be in love is both to intend and promise lifelong fidelity. Love makes vows unasked, can't be deterred from making them. If people go back to season one, he said the same thing in the chapter on marriage in Mere Christianity. But he then also says the world rings with complaints of his fickleness. (laughs) Eros is driven to promise what Eros himself cannot perform. In this is where the higher principles, the virtues come into play. I kind of chuckle because we just talked about some of the stuff that you'll do for Eros for the negative side. And I I put my notes, Lewis, and do do these exact words, but all for a fleeting feeling. Like with Eros without the virtue, you'll do some pretty crazy stuff and it's just a fleeting feeling. And then once it fleets, you're going to regret what you did. And so that's where that virtue has to come in. But Jack is actually kind of nice to Eros because he points out that, of course, he's going to make these promises because something amazing has happened. And this this brings us back to the positive side of Eros, uh, the image of charity that we have seen, because he says, in one high bound, it has overleaped the massive wall of our selfhood, our selfishness. We've gone out of ourselves, as one of our co-hosts is very fond of saying. Uh, it has made appetite itself altruistic, tossed personal happiness aside as a triviality, and planted the interests of another in the center of our being. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the wonderful things about falling in love. And when I met Kristen, I realized that it was a whole forest fire. I mean, it just overtook my whole life. But it's that it's that dizzying, even godlike quality of Eros that leads you to make a vow that you proportionally, no matter how long you've been together almost, um, proportionally, the rest of your life is going to be spent fulfilling that vow. And it's a it's a it's an irrational vow. To say that I'm going to be with you for the rest of my life, especially if you've only known each other for a year or two or three, and I'm going to spend the next 40 or 50 with you. But it is that that uh, that overwhelming sense of Eros that leads you to make the vow, but then you have to turn to something sturdier and steadier, like Storgi and especially Agape, um, Agape, in order to continue to keep the vow that you made when you were swept away by romance. And romance should lead us to make the vow. And that's part of why in medieval society, especially when divorce was simply not allowed, no matter how you felt for the person, you couldn't get married unless you were willing to never, ever, ever get divorced. And so this romantic feeling leads you to make the promise. Um, and then you have to, when the when the quotidian everyday of life kind of kind of overtakes you, you have to find ways to continue to keep that vow when you don't necessarily feel it. When arrow subsides to something else, other stronger things, quieter things, have to take their place. And I think that's probably somewhere in here as well. Yeah, he says that this isn't going to be carried out except by humility, charity, and divine grace. That is indeed the whole Christian life seen from one particular angle. And this is where we come to his final assessment of Eros. He says Eros needs help, therefore needs to be ruled. The god dies or becomes a demon unless he obeys God. It would be well if, in such a case, he always died. But he may live on, mercilessly chaining together two mutual tormentors, each raw all over with a poison of hate in love, each ravenous to receive and implacably refusing to give, Jealous, suspicious, resentful, struggling for the upper hand, determined to be free and to allow no freedom, living on scenes or drama. Mm -hmm. And 
my wife has just finished reading Anna Karenina. So this, this last line makes me really happy. He says, read Anna Karenina and do not fancy that such things happen only in Russia. The lover's old hyperbole of eating each other can come horribly near to the truth. Should I read it? Anna Karenina, it's long. <laughs> That's a no. Uh, yeah. Uh, Marie's really enjoyed it, and I'm currently watching the movie. So, Oh, there's a movie. Perfect. We're there, are, there are many. There we go. <laughs> well, and some say the loving and the devouring are all the same thing. And Orwell says do. that. Um, they drink, fellas. But I have <laughs> I to note that. that David put that quote in there. I did not put the Till We Have Faces quote in, but, uh, but David did. But that loving and devouring, that devouring she sees as a negative, but the devouring is what we need to allow God to do to us. He, sh he must devour our whole lives, if nothing else for justice, because what do we do every time we take the Blessed Sacrament? We devour God, right? And so there's something consuming about love that's of its nature. And we should be all burnt away until only Christ is left in us. We should be devoured. We want to be um, completely swallowed up in God. And uh, and it's a brilliant point that Lewis makes. And of course, he sets up our next chapter brilliantly. I hear the last bell, but the last thing I'll say real quick is, if any listeners are, are listening to this and you're like me, and you're thinking, man, this is kind of nervous. All of these loves so far have a lot of dangers and pitfalls and things I have to be quite worried about. The beautiful part that was somewhat expressed in the last paragraph is if you just focus your eyes on Christ, think of Peter getting out of the boat in the water and when he almost like takes his eyes off Christ, starts sinking. When you when you put your eyes on Christ, the divine love, the agape love, all the rest falls into place. Like that's that's a huge theme I'm seeing here. Focus on the virtues, focus on living that life, and you won't have to worry about these natural loves becoming demonic. So with that... I want to thank all of our supporters on Patreon. You guys are incredible. All of the different tiers. Uh, it's such a gift. It continues to grow and you guys are fantastic. <laughs> we want to thank a nanny mouse. <laughs> it's a nanny mouse. Nanny, nanny, hey. nanny mouse. <laughs> oh, Angel, that's great. Bill and Joanna. Uh, Joanna, I, I think that's one who I was just communicating with through email. We're looking forward to our, our call coming up here in a couple of weeks. Uh, Jake. Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. You guys are fantastic. We really appreciate it. Well, everybody, thanks for journeying with us through this chapter. Please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 Ooh, that was a good one. Yeah, it was.